I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about team dynamics and features Ben Darwin, former Australian rugby international and CEO of Gainline Analytics, and Porrick Smith, general manager of the Colorado Rapids in Major League Soccer. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Ben Darwin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And Porrick Smith, we've got you as well. Welcome, Porrick. Hey, thanks, Cody. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a really good one. Um, A fascinating topic. We're going to be talking about team dynamics. Um, I usually start off by explaining to everyone why I've paired you two together. This is another obvious one. Um, You're both immersed in this world in terms of uh, trying to kind of decode teams and how teams work um, and looking at it through the lens of of numbers, but also players and uh, and a whole range of different things that are swirling around in our environment now, uh, both in the business world and in the sports world. So um, this is a passion of mine, and I know you guys are super passionate about this as well. So let's dive straight in here. I'm going to start with you, Porik. Uh, you're the, the general manager of the Colorado Rapids in the MLS. Um, and I noticed one of the first things that you did uh, when you took on the interim job was you came out and kind of reaffirmed in the Denver Post you know, what the DNA of the club was. And we've done a whole other show on, on DNA projects, and uh, it, it's fascinating stuff, but I just want to ask you, why was that so important for you in terms of setting the scene and, and building a dynamic within your club and within you know, the on-field and off-field elements of, of what you were trying to achieve in Colorado? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Cody, in terms of saying it was both on-field and off-field. I think, first and foremost, it's really important to have clarity in terms of vision. You know, if you want people to buy into what you're doing, they have to truly understand what you're looking to achieve and, and, and more importantly, probably how you plan on getting there. And I think that was really crucial to us. We'd been a, a club that had had success in the past. We were, the, you know, one of the original 10 members of MLS. And um, so we've been around from 96. We'd won a title, which not every club in MLS had been able to say, you know, they'd done that in 2010. But since then, there'd been a lot of kind of ups and downs and the club didn't really necessarily stand for anything on the field. And the way we looked at that was that if you watched the Rapids game, you wouldn't necessarily know that that was the team because there was a, a particular style of play associated with us. And I think one of the things that we wanted to do was to, to clearly outline right at the beginning, look, this is who we are. This is who we're going to be. This is what we want to achieve. And this is how we're going to do it. And that was really just a, a massively important building block and, and really important to get, you know, not just our supporters, but our staff, the players, all our partners, for everyone to understand, you know, who we were. And I think fundamentally that was important in getting the buy-in that we got at the start. And We've since kind of developed that and grown it out, but I think it gave everybody a true sense of of what Colorado Rapids soccer was going to be in the future. And we kind of spoke about intensity, urgency, boldness, and being a more attacking and entertaining team. And it gave everybody a, a focal point. It gave everybody, you know, something that they could aim toward. And, and it really gave gave a sense of direction to people. So I think at the very beginning, you know, it was what helped to generate that buy-in and, and, and ensure that everybody was on the same page from day one. So it, it was really important to us. 
Yeah, and incredibly powerful as well. You know, I wrote about this concept in in my book with Ralph Kruger and what he did at Southampton. Essentially the same thing, you know, went to the full-time staff and it wasn't just the on-field guys. It wasn't just the players coming up with kind of buzzwords that everyone had to subscribe to. It was, you know, the social media team and accounts payable and, and everyone in the club and putting everyone on the, the right path. And you're right, enormously powerful. And um, Ben, you played on one of the best teams I've ever seen. I was born in Canberra, so I'm obviously a Brumbies fan. Uh, you played on the early 2000s team that, that went, I think was four Super Rugby finals in five years, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was essentially a startup club um, from the Waratahs and Reds players or the reject players. So I, I'm curious from you, in your experience when you were playing, what were some of those markers that you saw inside that team and even the Wallabies team that you were on that kind of created the sustained success that, that you guys had through those early 2000s? I think the, the biggest thing is to... Um, understand in some ways that the, the the Brumbies team that we're a part of wasn't actually really a startup team. What it was was an extension, and it was an extension of a team that had already pre-existed uh, called the Canberra Kookaburras. Um, and they took a lot of those guys who played together at the Kookaburras, and then they actually used those guys as well of another club called Randwick, and they brought in those players together. So we talk about this thing, you know. You know, one way to form a team is you can take a lot of externally shared experience and bring it in. Um, and so they had this advantage in the early years of the Brumbies, which is they had the Brumbies playing, but they also had the Kookaburras playing through all parts of it, which was under 20s, uh, second grade and first grade, um, about 90 games a year on top of what the Brumbies were already playing. And so that was a massive, massive advantage in terms of um, the way that the Brumbies continued to exceed for the next couple of years because Queensland and New South Wales didn't have anything like that. In fact, the only other team that had anything like that was the Crusaders, which was our kind of number one rival. Um, so uh, whilst I didn't recognise it at the time, what people said about the Brumbies was they punched above their weight. And one of the other things for us too was that we... Um, the goal was always to take the game forward. It wasn't about winning. It was about how can we improve the game? Now, with the Brumbies, what was really interesting is once they removed the Kookaburras as a feeder system, the success from the Brumbies stalled um, uh, going forward. And so I'm not saying that's a that's cause, but it's just an interesting kind of reflection is that may they may not have necessarily understood or things were slightly outside of their control of what they could actually do to help themselves um, going forward, as they say, you know, Tottenham, you know, you, you look after your academy, your academy looks after you. So I was uh, I was very, very lucky to be part of that system. Now, with the Brumbies at the time, some of those players flowed onto the Wallabies, but the main makeup of the team for the Australian team at that point was actually out of uh, Queensland Reds, which had been highly successful previous to that. Um, the Brumbies players didn't kind of take over until around sort of like 03, um, and then there was sort of a mixing period where the team fell away as the kind of one system took over from the other one. Um, but it was generally, uh, generally we went from a Reds-based system to the Brumbies-based system for the Wallabies. And it tends to be the senior guys who started to drive that. Um, but one of the things that happened with the Wallabies too is they started to import a lot of rugby league players, which also had sort of an interesting impact. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that actually about, uh, about Canberra in the background there. Um, that's an interesting point though, and I want to flip this over to, to you, Porik, because um, the, the 
MLS has an interesting structure that you don't traditionally associate with football, certainly outside of North America, but you've got to deal with constraints like salary cap and a rookie draft and even the, the single entity nature of MLS as a, as a governing body. Um, so like I mentioned, they're constraints, but when we're talking about kind of that building team dynamics and, and the cohesion that Ben's talking about there between players, like how are you, how can you navigate those waters knowing that, you know, you might not be able to pick in the draft until number 20 or, you know, you can only afford X players uh, in the next transfer window or whatever it may be. Because um, they're not things that you traditionally associate with building a football team in, in the broader scheme of, of world football. They're not. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what it really ultimately means is that the, the culture that you look to build and the standards that you set mean, mean even more. And, and I think they become even more important. You know, I think everything that you've outlined there is, is ultimately, you know, placing those constraints and giving you a finite number of resources that, that you can use to build your roster out. And that just means that every piece you bring in, it's even more important that they make sense. They all have to come in and they all have to fill a specific purpose and they have to work together. And, you know, obviously we've got a designated player rule over here, which means that, you know, teams can spend whatever they want outside of the salary cap on, on three players. And I think, you know, that allows certain teams to spend, you know, significantly in excess of what others do. But football is not basketball. You know, there's no LeBron James, one player, a superstar that's able to carry, you know, his four other teammates right the way through to a title. Like that doesn't happen in football. You've got 11 players out there. You've got, you know, three that are going to come off the bench. And ultimately, you've got a roster of 28 that's got to work to, to help you be successful. And ultimately, the, the, the sum of the parts can, or the whole can be far better than the sum of the parts if you get that culture right and if you get the standards right. And I think for us, as we try to turn our club around, that was one of the things that was really at the forefront of what we were what we were trying to do. You know, the, the way I look at it, the club had gone up and down one year in the playoff, two years out, one year in, two years out, but no culture had truly emerged. And, and that was really to the detriment of the club's long-term sustainable success. And once you start doing that, once you start driving a culture and identifying players that are going to fit within that and that have the character and the mentality that, that can you know, that can add to that culture and that, that, you know, look at those standards as being non-negotiables, you start to build um, a self-fulfilling prophecy where, where players, you know, are driven to succeed. They're, they're driven to, you know, they, they stand for something and they stand together for something. And I think, you know, all of these different constraints can be used to your advantage. Obviously, that's one of the things that, you know, we're geared towards in a salary cap structure. You're constantly looking for, for different ways to, uh, you know, to get the best value for money. You're looking at using analytics. You're looking at, you know, going out there and doing, you know, vast quantities of, of scouting to make sure you're, you're covering the globe and bringing in the best players you can. But ultimately, in that environment, if the culture is right, if the standards that are set are right, if the non-negotiables are in place, and if the players you bring in have the right character and mentality to adhere to those and to really thrive in those conditions, you're putting yourself in a better position to succeed. So we don't necessarily look at them as, as you know, being obstacles. We look at them as, as being, you know, the parameters in which we operate, but that if we drive, you know, and if we create a, a team dynamic and a cohesiveness amongst the group, we will be able to succeed almost, you know, in, in cohorts with, with those constraints because we feel like we're going to get a better better bang for our dollar across the board. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I've been in Toronto nine years now, so I've kind of seen Toronto FC do a similar thing where a real culture has emerged. And funnily enough, you know, being part of a big conglomerate like they are, 
Uh, it's not something that you would traditionally associate. Usually, you know, it would kind of come from a, a smaller club with an owner and, you know, there was a particular style of play and a particular, you know, style of leadership and all that sort of stuff. But um, it's been interesting to watch them develop through that process as well and, and carve out a real identity in town, which they didn't really have. And Toronto is not a small market, you know, there's 5 million people in the GTA. And, um, you know, it's one of the biggest TV, I think it's one of the biggest four TV markets in North America. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's extremely powerful stuff. And, and um, one question I was going to ask you, Porik, uh, how do you kind of measure that progression? Because there's a lot of ups and downs in uh, in the MLS from year to year in terms of performance. Uh, so it's not like kind of a Bournemouth situation where you can watch them kind of slowly climb and, you know, accumulate money and good players and all that sort of stuff and climb up the league. Um, so how, how do you measure progression that's not necessarily, you know, points on the table? I think you look at it in a number of different ways. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're in professional sports, so winning is what matters. Um, in MLS, unlike football in, in Europe, obviously, we've got a playoff-based system, and you do add that kind of cup element to it once you're in the playoffs. We are driven, you know, to, to, to kind of try and gain any marginal advantage we can and any, any additional percentage advantage over the opponent. So we've looked at analytics and we've looked to kind of, you know, use some, some underlying, you know, uh, metrics that we've developed ourselves to identify whether or not we're moving in the right direction. But a lot of it can be seen, you know, amongst the group as well. And I think that's one of the key things for us. And, you know, we had a disappointing season. We were, you know, making massive changes in, in 2018. We changed not only our coaching staff, but a lot of our front office, our sports science team, and then 17 out of 28 players. So huge change at the club. And, and there were periods of, of, you know, real challenges and real difficulties over the course of the season. But one of the things that I looked at as being very telling in terms of the culture and the standards that we were trying to introduce was the fact that even though we were out of the playoff picture, we ended the season well. You know, when there was nothing left for those players to kind of really compete for, there's no relegations. You don't have that motivation that, that does drive drive team and drives individuals back in Europe. That's not exi- That doesn't exist here. So to see us kind of go into those final three games of the season and emerge with two wins and a defeat when there was supposedly nothing on the table, I, I think spoke a lot to the character of the players, but it also spoke a lot to the culture that I think the coaching staff and Anthony Hudson and, and, and his guys had had really built down there and that was something that was that was truly important to me to kind of see that because it would have been easy for people to kind of you know proverbial kind of thinking about the beach and, and their, their kind of off-season holidays but they weren't they wanted to end the season well they would you know they took pride in their performances at the end and I think that's a good catalyst for us as we, we move into our off-season and, and prepare ourselves for what we hope is going to be a very successful 2019. Love that. We've talked about analytics a little bit, so let's open this up because um, I want to. We'll start with you, Ben, because your company, Gainline Analytics, this is your world now. And uh, we were talking a little bit before the show about how that came about, uh, and I'd love for you to tell that story as well. But if you guys get this right, this isn't Moneyball. This is Da Vinci Code. Um, is is my assessment of it. Like this is kind of the key to everything. Um, your company is looking to decode culture and co- cohesion amongst groups and, and that's applicable obviously in the sports world, the military, business world. Um, so I, I find this fascinating. So let's dive into it. Why don't you start with just a little bit of a primer on what you guys have been up to over the last couple of years and, and where it's been applicable and then we can kind of open the floor and, and shoot questions at you. 
So I think that the, um, the first thing was the business started off as a completely different model. We were actually selling data to um, rugby clubs about player availability. So we're just running a database on, um, you know, uh, how many, uh, which, you know, how many flankers were available around the world. So we're watching this database about 15,000 players. And as we built this database, we started to notice certain things about clubs, which was one, the greater the level of churn you had in the off season, the worse the club would do in the next year. So Prog was talking about that for, for Colorado, that basically that churn creates a limitation on performance as we've found so far. The next part was we found that clubs, even if they didn't want to keep the players they had, for example, sometimes a, a club would get breached on salary cap and the league would say, you can't trade anybody in for the next couple of years. And the fans would all say, oh, that club, they're done now, they're going to win wooden spoons. But invariably, they would improve in their performance. Or there'd be a time when an owner would say, I'm going to, I'm going to sell the club, I'm putting a freeze on all contracts from here on in for the next 12 months until I sell it, and they don't sell it. And, they, and so therefore, the players they have simply have to stay, and they just have to see out the contracts they have. The club invariably improves. So I was really interested in this idea. And I started to look at what, what some people might call portability of talent. And so I looked into the researcher, a guy called Grossberg, who's at Harvard Business School, and he was looking at the portability of talent between stockbroking firms. And he found the average, it took somebody to hit their peak when they changed clubs, was, uh, sorry, changed organizations was about three years. So we put the same question to what was at the time uh, ProZones, now Stats, and they said it's about two years on average, but there's a couple of dynamics at play. One is what is the team they're coming from? What is the position and the skill set of the person that's being traded? And three, what are they going to? And it was the first time I'd heard the quote called the Bayern Munich Mirage. Have you guys heard of that before? No, I no, haven't actually. Um, so the Bayern Munich Mirage was if you take a player from a cohesive, well-organized team, the better that team looks, the more the player is going to underperform when they come to you. And then somebody said to me in rugby league, they call it the Melbourne Storm Mirage, which is you take someone out of the Melbourne Storm, which is the leading team in Australia, the chances of them performing at the same standard are almost impossible. And so what it was about was, was the collective of that group was reflecting itself in the performance of the individual. And so when the individual left, they were not able to replicate that performance because they weren't doing it with the same people. And one of the really interesting statistics we looked into was what happens if, if somebody is judged on their performance by, by somebody else? And, and one of the only ways we could find that was awards for, say, the best player. And, for example, in rugby league, we found if somebody played in what we call the midfield or the spine of the team, no one ever seemed to win awards as the best player were in that midfield position or that spine. So hookers, halfbacks, five-eighths, for example, they had to be at their club for seven years before they would win the best in that position in the comp, whereas, for example, wingers could do it 18 months, no problems. And then we looked at things like um, wingers transfer codes or fullbacks transfer codes much more easily. Then we looked at maybe strikers transfer teams in football more easily. So we started to look at the, the positional aspect and so we were really interested in this idea around does understanding affect performance? If so, how? Um, and, for, and one of the things, for example, that we were talking about there was, was for, for Colorado was that if you have churn, generally the team will struggle, but there's a law of diminishing returns. Once you get the first 20, 30 games under your belt or as many might be, the back end will come good. So 
In rugby union, for example, the French will start World Cups terribly, but they come home like a freight train at the back end because they're building that understanding and the acceleration of their performance is much, much greater than the, the, the cohesive teams because they don't accelerate at the same rate because they're already there. So as we've gone along, we've tried to build an understanding and we, we went back and we looked at nine different sports over 30 years and we just looked at the contracting and we, we basically came to this idea of buy versus build. And of course, it's all grey, you know, I mean, even Ferguson still, still, still bought players. But we were trying to look at the team as an entire singular dynamic, a dynamic of understanding. And we broke the understanding down into three parts. Understanding of, of your teammates. So, you know, if a midfield play together, um, you know, uh, they don't necessarily have to like each other, but they've, they've, they've had a lot of time in those positions together. They'll tend to be more effective over time. Accuracy will increase. Then the other part was um, understanding of role. Um, so, you know, if you change positions, it takes a, a time to adapt and then change of program. So for example, when Moyes came into Manu, he changed the way they played. So the team had to adapt and maybe they were so ingrained in that system, it was hard for them to change. So we look at all three of these and then we look at the competition as a whole. And so the most cohesive competition we've ever found is the AFL in Australia. Now the AFL, basically you can't trade players. They have to, you have to wait till they're 26 to trade them. So almost every player plays together all the time. Now to win that comp as an expansion franchise, it's taken one club now, they're doing pretty well, but it's taken them six or seven years to be effective. So the more cohesion in the competition, the harder it is to bring the expansion teams. And you know, you find the opposite, say for example, the championship is a very low cohesion competition in the UK. The other thing that tends to happen is the lower the cohesion of the league, the lower the tenure of the coaches because there's a misunderstanding from the owners about whether teams should be doing well or not. So I think the average tenure of a manager in the, in the championship is between eight months and 1.2 years. Whereas in the AFL, I think it's about five seasons, something like that. The average manager lasts or average coach lasts about five seasons. So we're trying to understand how much understanding affects performance and not to try to say, uh, try to bring a bias to it, but just say, you know, do we think it un do we think it under affects teams? How does it affect teams? And how can you integrate skill into a team? And one of the really interesting parts of this is how does it two things? One, how does it affect skill acquisition? So there are some clubs we say just become a black hole for talent, no matter what comes in, nothing comes out. Whereas the other clubs that take very average looking players and can turn them into something pretty extraordinary. Now, is that coaching or is it system? Is it continuity of system? Because if you're constantly chopping and changing, you can't improve. And then the third part is how does it affect behaviors of people? So does chaos, you know, does churn affect, affect culture or behaviors? I'm not a big, I don't really understand culture very well sometimes, but the best way I've had to explain is normative behaviors. And it takes time to build normative behaviors. And the stronger your group has been together, the more effective they are. But one of the really interesting examples we've actually found was a team called the West Coast Eagles. I don't know if you've both heard of them, but in the AFL, they were in the final 16 out of 18 years. I think they won two or three titles, but they had a massive drug problem off the field. In fact, one of the guys who won the 2006 grand final, I think one is dead, three are in jail and 10 have been arrested on drugs charges. And talking to the players who were part of that team, they said on the field, it was unbelievable. Everybody knew their role. Everybody knew what to do. We won games, felt fantastic. Off the field, it was a debacle. 
Whereas they said some of those guys went to other teams and they said on the field it was terrible, but off the field, great bunch of guys. You know, Carlton is an example of this in the AFL, wonderful bunch of people, but they churn so hard, they never are effective. They never get to a point of being effective. And I think one of the biggest numbers we've got to is, is there a number that can tell us the minimum amount of understanding you require in order to win a league or order to be successful? And that changes between leagues because each dynamic is built differently. But for example, in the AFL, there's a number we call 10K GSE. No one's ever won the league under that number. Or in the NRL, it's 3.2K GSE, which is about the understanding between the players. And so most teams exist under that at some point, but when they can get beyond that, that gives them a chance to be successful. So I don't know if I've explained this stuff very much, but there's kind of just a, a, a very brief overview of it. I think there's some really interesting things in, in there, Ben. Like there's just a couple of things I'm writing down as you're as you're chatting, but the points you made about understanding the role for the players and position specific and then the program changes and your reference boys completely changing the um almost the identity of the team at, at Man United when he took over from Ferguson. I think that's something that's lacking and, and you're you're absolutely right. You see that then in the churn on the managerial side. And I think this then, you know, you, you can relate that back to to club vision and it's something we spoke about at the very at the very outset here was you know having an actual vision for your club having a philosophy and, and having you know a set of principles that you're going to stick for and that you're going to stand for something because so many clubs irrespective of the sport they allow a coach to come in and change everything now if you're working on a development academy and and you've got a head coach at the senior level changing the way the team play, changing the philosophy or the vision of the team, then it's impossible to have a fully integrated system from top to bottom. And I think, you know, you know, I think we've started to see and I think we'll continue to see more and more clubs state that they've got a vision rather than allowing a manager to come in and actually alter that or change that philosophy. And I think those are the clubs that are going to have less churn and by extension, you know, obviously following on from what you're saying, they're going to have more success because they have got that cohesiveness and that, you know, that sense of, of you know, understanding that every every new player is just becoming a, a cog in a much, much larger machine that's going to be able to work because everybody knows what their role is. And I think that's something that's been, you know, fundamentally flawed in, in certainly in the championship. And, and, you know, I think that's been clear for everybody to see, you know, clubs do lack that vision. But when there is a clear vision of purpose and when clubs can then change manager, by identifying coaches that you know truly believe in the vision that they have and the philosophy and the style of play that they have, you're going to have a, a consistency and approach that will allow you to you know bring players up from the academy. That will allow you to go out into the open market and identify players that truly fit in with the fabric of the club, and that ultimately will lead to you know better continuation, better understanding, and then hopefully more success. So I, I think it's it's fundamentally important, and, and I think the clubs that understand that best are the clubs that are putting themselves in the position for sustainable success. And, and I, I think the most important thing here is governance. You know, you, you, we it's it's got to come down to getting permission to be able to go on that journey, and either from the owners or from the board. And if I could give you an example in rugby league, I, I spoke to an, an ex CEO of a club in rugby league here in Australia, and he was talking to his board and he said to the board, guys, we've been chopping and changing coaches. We've had nine different coaches in 15 years. We've had 10 different CEOs in 21 years. This has got to stop. And I'll give you a choice. One, we, we pay the players in cash, in paper bags, and we try to buy ourselves a title. But if we do it, we'll destroy ourselves. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. If we, if we just bring in the best players, we'll win. And they said, okay, that's option one. Option two is, 
we take our time, we set a vision, as you said, for the club. We, you, we have a couple of wooden spoons, you know, we come last and then we're per mid-table, then we'll make the finals, then we'll start winning and then we'll win all the time. We'll keep winning all the time and we'll be highly successful. And they said, no, 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 you don't really understand. You know, that's not how we do business. We, we need to be successful now. So they said, okay, let's put it to a vote. They voted eight to one for option A. And the reason is because the tenure of everybody on the board was only two years. So no one was ever be, going to be able to see it through. And if you don't have that philosophy of seeing it through and sticking to your guns, then success never comes. You, could, you can have the greatest system in the world, but if you have it for two years and then you bring in the next greatest system in the world, you don't get anywhere. And, and I think one of the biggest things that we find is change takes many forms. People think change means you have to actually change direction or change people. What we say is actually when you, when you do nothing, a team changes dramatically. We see that statistically. When you do nothing to a starting 11, you improve over time. That is another form of change, but people just don't see that because what you're doing is you're building something invisible, which is trust and understanding and role. And, you know, it's an accumulation of understanding over time, but that's an invisible change. And because people can't see it, they don't want to know about it. It's an interesting one. I'm glad you said the permission there as well, because what I was thinking as you guys were talking there was the example of the Patriots and I've brought this up on the show before, but what most people don't realize was uh, Bill Belichick, before he took that role, actually quit at his introductory press conference with the New York Jets. And it was because the ownership had changed and uh, essentially the ownership weren't going to give him the permission to run the program how he wanted to run it. And so he ends up in New England and Robert Kraft says, have at it, son, I'm, I'm with you. And, and that permission from kind of top to bottom. And sure, it was, you know, almost an immediate payoff for them, but it's those kind of remnants are still there today where there is that that trust and that um, that allowance for him to go and, and run it. And now it's at a point where they're changing so consistently that it's actually generating stability, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, they're a very unique case, but uh, just to kind of touch on that permission thing, I think that's so key right from the start to get that alignment from top to bottom because there's no point having this this DNA project thing and coming out with all these words um, if they're out the window in, in two years' time. I think, I think a really important point to this too is that when we look at a player too, part of it, part of what we call cohesion isn't necessarily about just games together. It's also about what we call purity of experience. So a period of experience might be if you bring a kid into a club, you can teach him the way you want him to play. You could teach him the Colorado way or the Man United way. Whereas if you bring a guy from another club and he's not on the same page, then he's got habits. And those it's much harder to undo habits than it is to teach people new, new ones. You know, if they've never, they've never done something before, you can teach them how you want them to do it. Whereas if they've been playing under another system, that's ingrained in them. And the longer they've been there, the harder it is. So, um, what's really interesting with the with the Patriots would be to say, would Brady have become Brady anywhere else? Is it the system that made him? And there's a great quote actually from um, from uh, a, a guy called Craig Bellamy, who's probably the leading coach in the NRL, and they were talking to him about his his big four, which was uh, sorry big three, which was Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk, and Billy Slater. And in a, very much the same way with the Brady's, no one wanted these guys. 
they weren't wanted by the Broncos. One was a rugby union player, another one was working in a printing factory, another one was a jockey. And they brought them in and the Broncos didn't want them. And, and they said to Bellamy, what is it about this guy that, that said he was going to be the greatest? You know, he was going to play 358 games in the NRL. And he said, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember him. If you told me he was going to be the guy, I'd punch you in the face. What tends to happen over time is when great systems create great players, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, which says they were always meant to be the best. But you could say that no one else picked that in Brady. No one else saw what maybe they saw in Brady, but maybe he never would have become that anywhere else. And that's what we talk about. There are some clubs that just never produce any talent. No matter how good something goes in, they never develop in the same way. Whereas the really good clubs, they can take what what some people might regard as average athletes and turn them into exceptional athletes because they actually get to work on the skill. And I think the Spurs up until this year could be regarded as one of those clubs. I don't think Paddy Mills would have become Paddy Mills anywhere else except the Spurs. So, Porik, as the one that's creating this in, in real time, how do you create it? Uh, you know, given all the circumstances that, that you've got to deal with, how how can you create that that atmosphere where you can bring the kids in uh, but also supplement at the top end and, and keep it on track? Well, I think, again, first and foremost, it goes back to the vision. It comes back to to having a set of standards, to having a plan, and, and to really being completely committed to that. Now, you know, Ben used the word permission earlier, and I think he's absolutely right, because you have to have the support and permission of your ownership group, your board of directors, whatever that may be, to go and implement a real change strategy. But change strategy only works when when you've got a clearly defined set of objectives that you're trying to achieve and a pathway to that. And then you can't deviate from that. And, you know, we found that this year. You know, we had, we had two absolutely top players based on their, their CV. You know, and when they came in, you know, there is no way they shouldn't have been in our starting 11. They were better players than the guys who ended up in there week in and week out. But because they didn't want to adhere to the standards that we had put in place and the non-negotiables that we had put in place, because they want, didn't want to do certain things that we felt were fundamental to enable us to build a long-term sustainable success culture, then we have to take that tough decision and say, okay, we're going to take some short-term pain here. We're going to lose games, but we are going to set an example and we are going to show to people that we are not messing around with the culture that we're trying to build here. Now, if you've got a you know, trigger-happy board or if you've got people who don't necessarily buy into this and the eight months to 1.2 years that we're talking about, uh, you know, the average length of time that a championship coach is in place, it's impossible to do that. You simply cannot do that because you can't give up short-term um, you know, looking for that long-term sustainable success because you're not going to get the time to do that. So if you've got the buy-in at the top and if you're going to be able to make those tough decisions and stick with it and not worry about what's being said or what's being put on social media, et cetera, et cetera, if you're willing to stick to your guns on that, you can come out the other side. And then it starts to kind of grow. So, I mean, we talked about, about the Patriots there. And I mean, there's the wonderful book by Michael Hall, The Patriots Way, where they talk about, you know, eventually the culture becoming so ingrained that nobody really had to say anything. It was passed on from player to player, from leader to leader. And that's what you start to look for here. You start to look for, you know, a, a culture that permeates down from the top right the way through the academy so that as players develop and start to get promoted and start to get, you know, advanced through the, from the 70s, 19s into your first team, they already know what it means to be a part of your organization. They know what it takes to be a part of your club and to make it at the, at the level there. 
And then on the outside, you're going out and being much more selective in the type of player that you want to bring in. You know, you can actually do all your background work, all your due diligence, go and find out about the character and mentality of a player to make sure that the guys you're bringing in fit with the culture that you're that you're building and fit with the culture that you, you want to have kind of, um, you know, override everything else in your organization. And that's when it starts to become uh, this machine that, that, that can move forward and that can bring, you know, sustainable success. And you've also got to be prepared to make mistakes along the way. You're not going to get every decision right, you know, and that's, that's something that, again, I think you have to be open to and you have to kind of learn from those mistakes and understand, okay, what did we do here? You know, what led us to bring in the wrong player? What led us to promote a player from the academy who wasn't quite ready? Whatever that is. And, and you simply learn from that. And you continue to delve into the, the mindset of these individuals to make sure that you are bringing in the right people because that's what it starts with. You know, once you've got the culture in place, once you've got the buy-in from ownership, it then has to be the, the, the people have to be right when they join the organization. The talent, you know, you kind of, there's going to be plenty of players that will reach that talent level, especially for a club like us in MLS, when you're looking at that on an international spectrum, there are many, many talented players who can all come over and play in MLS. There may not be the right number of people though who can come in and, and really impact it the way we want to. So you've got to be very selective from that regard. But it starts at the top. It starts with that, you know, permission and understanding that it's going to take time. And then it's really about sticking to your guns and making sure that you don't deviate from the plan, that you don't allow, you know, a so-called superstar player or a big name signing to do his own thing to the detriment of the group. It has got to be something that you truly believe in, that you're truly committed to, and that you're willing to take short-term sacrifices to achieve in the long term. I think one thing we've looked at, and I think this was a real follow-on from that, was when I when I joined the Brumbies as a as a 21 year old, um, I was told to change or go. My behaviour had to change, and I was told by the senior players, not by the coaches. I was told by the senior players, your behaviour has to change or you can leave. And that group of guys, they had they were as we would measure them, extremely cohesive. They're probably the most ex- cohesive team in the world at that point. And so I was told, statistically from our, our end, and so one of the biggest things with an organisation is it's got to have memory. You're talking about how there was times when, um, you know, you, you, you need to learn from the decisions you make. We've had experiences where we've talked to boards and they've said, this is really interesting information. You should have come and talked to the board two years ago. And we said, we did, but none of you were in the room. So the entire place had turned over. And if you're turning over from the top end at coaches and managers, you've got no memory. And oftentimes the teams are very surprised by the decisions they've made historically and to also find they've made the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so when you get continuity, you get memory, it allows you to understand your decisions and then build upon those decisions and not make the same mistakes um, again and again and again. Yeah, you're dead right, because, I mean, mistakes will be made, but it's your reaction to those mistakes that's important. And it's, it's again, if you, if you have that turn, you're never going to have stability. And stability is really what allows you to go on and make the right decisions. It allows you to learn from the past and correct yep. things and move forward. And that's, it, it's, it's hugely important. I was going to say, um, we find a lot of examples when you don't have any stability and you don't have any memory what then happens is any old person can come in and influence the team. So if a team has no, let's call it cohesion, as we measure it, the team's got no cohesion. If they buy the superstar, that superstar can come in and say, guys, this is how I did it over here. You know, we're going to do that now. And it's just fine, but there's going to now be a level of adaptation required. So in talking about the examples that you guys have with Colorado, 
you know, those guys come in and you say, hang on a second, no, you're not going to change the behaviours of the group. We're going to stick to our guns here and we're going to push back. Whereas a lot of teams, they won't do that. And there's particularly an example in Australia where they brought in an absolute superstar and he had how he wanted to train, he had how he wanted to do it. And they let him do that because they were more worried about the fans coming in through the door, getting the results straight away. But the damage that was done, the, the players that left um, in that scenario is going to hurt them for quite a while longer. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to be willing to take that short-term gain or short-term pain if you truly believe in what you're doing. And, you know, I mean, look, it's an old adage, but no one player can be bigger than the team. And as I said at the start, I mean, this isn't basketball. You know, one superstar cannot drive you to victory in these sort of sports where you've got 11, 13 or 15 players on the field that are, you know, that are there as a group and they've got to win together. They just think no one individual can do it. You can have special players. But if those special players do not conform to the group to, to the group dynamic, then the group will not achieve to the levels that it can. As you guys are talking there, I'm glad we're talking about um, you know kind of the the hard knocks side of things and, and taking your licks a little bit as well because you know we were talking about the media beforehand and and that's something that very rarely comes up is that your culture shows up in the hard times, not the good times. It, it's so easy to look at. You know, we've been talking about the Patriots and the, and the Spurs and all these different teams, and it's so easy to grab those moments in time. But what I'm interested in is, um, you know, Stoke City now. You know, they had this great culture that was you know, feeding them into the, the Premier League and are picking up these players from from other clubs that were overlooked or overpriced or overage um, and, and creating something special out of them. And then they flinched on their vision a little bit, and Peter Coates has admitted that. Um, so yeah, for for me, I love to look at the teams that have traditionally been really strong in this area. The Spurs are another one this year, not going so well. So now is when the culture needs to show up, not when they're sitting on top of the Western Conference. I think it's hard for us because we look at it from such a different perspective, which is the mathematical perspective. But certainly what we know is that when you get large amounts of change, that can have an enormous impact on that cultural part. And some clubs never recover from that. There are some, you know, we talk about this number TWI, can grow uh, five to 10% a year at best. So let's say it takes four or five years to get it to a number where you think you could be pretty successful, but you can drop it 30% in one day if you really want to by, by types of change. And so if you do that 30%, that sends you back five years. And that stuff you can't, you can't, grow you can't grow organically quickly it just doesn't it just doesn't come out that way you could go and borrow a team from somewhere else but in the end they're never going to stay anyway because players just don't act like that so i, I think it's a we, we tend to find that the construction will also affect the way the players put the the team is put together and it will start to impact the culture you can't put order on chaos so when you have a club that's in chaos you can't say guys we're going to act this way because you have to really get that better down. It takes time for them to adjust. Porik, I'm interested in your perspective on this, actually, as an Arsenal fan, and you're in the, the kind of broader uh, group. Um, now, Mr. Cronky owns the, the Arsenal Football Club as well, but talking of kind of going through that process and change and changing managers and changing a lot of players and even to a certain extent, like we're talking about, flinching on that um, that culture that had been established and the player development pathway that had been established. 
What's your perception kind of looking at Arsenal uh, over the last, let's call them the Wenger era, um, and, and especially more recently now that they've gone through this early ch- um, stage of the changeover to, to Emery? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, irrespective of what individual club you want to look at, the principles all, all remain the same. And I think Ben hit the, you know, was absolutely right there in terms of, you know, you can't put structure on chaos straight away. And this thing, these things don't change overnight. You know, they really don't. And you've got to be prepared to, you know, to, to stick to your principles and to, to, to really understand what it's going to take to get there. And then you've got to get committed people. You've got to get people that, you know, are bought in 100% to the vision and to the, to the process, because ultimately that's what it's going to, that's what it's going to come back to. You know, if, if you want this short term success and if you want to throw money at it, you know, yeah, sure. Every now and then you can hit on that and you might win a title, but you're not going to build long-term sustainable success. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. There, there is no ability to just like click your fingers and have a culture to have a hugely successful team that is going to compete for titles year in and year out. That does not happen by accident and it does not happen overnight. So you've got to put in the hard yards. You've got to do the work to make sure that you've got a cohesive group for in, in all aspects of what you do. It's not just about the players in the locker room. Everybody's got to feel a part of it. And it's something that we talked a lot about here at the, the Rapids. When we, when we kind of, um, rolled out our strategy document, we brought everybody that was involved in the club, all of those that were employed by the club, but also those that are part of our alliances and part of our you know, affiliates. We brought them all in here and we kind of talked about, about the standards and how important every single individual person was in that room to the team's long-term success. And there's the, the wonderful old story about you know, um, President Kennedy walking into NASA and, and you know, seeing somebody emptying the garbage and asking him what he did. And he said, I put men on the moon. And that's what we want to feel. That's what we want people to realize here, that every single individual involved in the club here at the Rapids is involved in winning titles. That's what they're there to do. It doesn't matter what their role is on a day-to-day basis. They are here to help the club achieve its ultimate goal. And their role is crucially important. And it's only through helping people to understand that and taking the time to go through that with people that they're truly going to get that. And that that applies whether it's the Colorado Rapids, the Brumbies or Arsenal. It doesn't matter. You have got to understand what you're trying to do. You've got to have a clear vision for that. You've got to have buy-in of the individuals. And that buy-in can only come when there's a true sense of belief in the pathway and the process. I think, too, one of the things that we see is that just because you're doing things right today doesn't mean you'll win today, but it'll help you to win into the future. And there are times, too, when you're actually winning, but you're doing things, your standards might start to be dropping, but it's not going to show in the field yet. Yeah, and you've got to be able to roll as well. You've got to be able to make changes. And, and I think that's why you've always got to self-analyze. You've always got to have a group of individuals at the top who are willing to poke holes, who are willing to prod each other and say, hey, are we doing this right? Should we be looking at something else? Is there something else happening? You can't just, I mean, the second you start standing still, you're going backwards. It's not, we, we operate in a very dynamic environment and you have got to be constantly moving forward, constantly challenging yourself, constantly looking for new ways to improve and new edges that you can get over the competitive competition. That's, that's hugely important in this. Uh, I, I think too, there's a key to this, which is about evolving. Change takes many different forms. And you say, right, how do we build on what we have but not throw out the baby with the bathwater? You know, like we've got some good systems here. Let's just make this small kind of uh, change as opposed to saying, right, let's take a complete, you know, 180 degree return. There are definitely times when that is required. But 
but most of the time um, it's just it's a small nuance that kind of adds. And the thing I'm actually really interested in is it seems to be a lot of the really, really successful teams are actually play very, very simple structures. If you look at the Crusaders, for example, Robbie Deans talks about they only ever had three patterns, but there was a level of complexity inside of those patterns that they could pretty much adapt to anything. And I think it, that, that simplicity sometimes actually is a very, very over, over, um, undervalued commodity. Um, everyone is trying to play with so much complexity, they outdo everybody else. But I think a very, very well-executed game plan done very simply, but at a high pace, um, and then is adaptable enough to be able to, to change with what comes at them. Um, and when everybody knows that really, really well, one, it's, it's, it enables you to be able to teach the guys who come into the system um, uh, uh, much faster. But it also means that you can get to really, really high levels of detail inside that structure and get to very high levels of accuracy. Yeah, the, that's what I would say with... Manchester United might be their biggest problem, actually. The the Ferguson years was exactly what you were talking about there, Ben, where it was so simple yet so complex at the same time and then had the ability to adapt, you know, when it when it wasn't the Beckhams and the Giggses, uh, you know, scoring all-world goals. They had the, the ability to go and defend in the defensive half for the last five minutes and see out a game and really dig in. But yeah, they're, they're kind of struggling to find that simplicity again, funnily enough, with the X's and O's. I think the great teams will find a way because there's a sense of belief that's built over time. You know, and again, there's in, in, in the documentary on, on those guys at class of 92, there was, you know, a comment made in that where they talked about going into the last five, ten minutes of games, that not only did they know they were going to score, but they felt that the opposition knew they were going to score. But that, again, that doesn't happen overnight. That's a, a sense of belief that is built up over years and years and years of doing the right thing. You know, doing the right thing and having a fundamental belief in those around you that they are committed in the same way that, that you are, that they adhere to the same set of standards that you do, they have the same values that you do, and they stand for the same thing that you do. And when you've got that, that level of trust and cohesiveness within a group, then the collective is always going to be better and always going to be stronger. But again, it comes back. I mean, we're almost going full circle here to the cohesiveness that we started at, at, at the very beginning of this. It, it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. And if you allow yourself to be constantly have your head turned by, you know, the bright shiny object, you won't get to where you truly need to where you truly need to go because that level of cohesiveness, trust, understanding, and belief only comes over time. Belief belief is something that's built through repeated actions. And, and continuing to see that something works because of what you do to drive that. And, and that, that, I think, was fundamental in that team, was that that belief was there and that trust was there amongst the group. And the understanding was, if we continue to do what we do to the level that we do it, we will be successful. I, th I think there's, there's a, a couple of things that's really interesting about what you're saying. First of all, um, you could also be describing uh, the Wallabies in the late 90s. You could be describing the Patriots you could be describing the Spurs, you know, that it's unbelievable ability to somehow repeatedly come up with amazing efforts under duress late in the game. Um, and I think fatigue, you know, under fatigue, um, that stuff has a really interesting impact. Um, the other part is what we call non-cohesive teams and their ability to be disastrous. Um, and, 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 you know, when I think about this, I think of Germany versus Brazil in the World Cup of uh, 2014, where you had a late change to Brazil 
everyone's looking to each other. No one knows quite how to defend positionally. And the German team, which was the, that German team was probably one of the most statistically cohesive teams we found ever in world football, just tore them apart, but tore them apart in a very simple way. I think six or seven goals were just pass, pass, score. It's really, you know, simple. And we talk about highly cohesive teams. They're just a mechanism. It's not, you know, the emotional context almost gets put to one side. The level of understanding is so strong. You know, you get guys passing to each other without looking at each other because they simply know where that guy is going to be. But when when things go awry for for non-cohesive teams, we find it's incredible their ability to fall apart under duress. And you could say that, you know, historically of English football, come the big moment, English football has a habit because it's simply not built. English football's never been built to be cohesive. Um, and this is where we look a lot at representational systems. I mean, how on earth do you lose to Iceland? And part of Iceland was a lot of their kids had to play together, being annihilated all the way through their juniors, but they simply had to keep picking the same blokes because there was simply no one else. And with England, you've got enormous amounts of choice. You've got so many players coming up through the system. I know there's limitations, obviously, around the, the foreign, foreign um, aspect, but there's certainly more good players in England than there is in Iceland. Um, and so one of, the, one of the really interesting things is not only how cohesion affects teams, but also the lack of cohesion, how that affects teams and how they, they can really, as I said earlier, fall apart under duress. And everybody tries to step into everybody else's roles and, everybody, and there seems to be no plan and, and things fall apart. And the more the pressure comes up, the more they start to make unbelievably what seems like simple mistakes become very, very commonplace. Do you find that there's... Um, catalysts, like catalyst players to that lack of cohesion, like you talked about one change to the Brazil side that kind of caused the whole thing to potentially fall over? Do you find that there are particular players within a team that have a higher uh, capacity to cause that? I think that it depends upon the interactions. I mean, uh, I'll give you an example. as a team of the North Queensland Cowboys um, you know, a couple of years ago were our favourites to win the title. They lost, and, and their, their numbers were just off the charts. They, they, were, they were winners on GSE data every day of the week. And they lost three players you'd never really hear of, but they were players that were, as you'd probably want to call it, in the middle. They were in the middle of their defence. They are in the middle of everything they did. Once you remove those guys, sometimes it may look like nothing. They're not necessarily the superstars, but some people might call them the glue players is they're, they're in the, the portions of the field that require high levels of interactions. You can take a striker, switch clubs, he'll still score goals. You know, um, uh, Abramovich is a, you know, wherever he goes, he's going to score. But what tends to happen is we find cohesion manifests itself the most in defence because defence requires understanding. You can buy goals through skill, but what you can't do is you can't buy defence because defence comes through understanding over time. And every sport works differently, but it's amazing how much that seems to repeat itself over time. Um, so with Brazil, I mean, what, what's interesting is if you take a low cohesion team and they come up against a no quality, they'll belt them the same as everybody else. You won't even see the lack of cohesion. But when you put them under pressure, uh, that's when they tend to fall apart. So um, it's, it's, it actually requires them to be able to have to defend under duress. Dealing with complexity under duress is what seems to break them. All right, lads, we've covered a lot here today. Uh, we are running out of time, so we'll just do uh, the final promos. Uh, where can people follow along with you, Porik, and, and what you're doing and uh, you know, social media and, and all that sort of stuff? How can people follow along with you? 
Yeah, I think for the most part of me, it's, it's coloradorapids.com. That's that's really where I have my, most of my presence. Um, I don't have a, a well, I do have a personal um, Twitter account, but I, I don't use it too much to be perfectly honest. So coloradorapids.com is certainly where, where most people can follow my stuff. Wonderful. And Ben, where can people follow with you? Uh, if they just look up Gainline uh, on Twitter, um, Gainline Analytics um, or uh, Gainline.biz is our website. Wonderful. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, I know you're calling from all across the, the continent and across the world. So I appreciate your time. And uh, this has been fantastic and um, intellectually stimulating for me and, and also, I'm sure, for our listeners as well. So thanks to both of you. Thanks very much. Thank you. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave them a five-star rating. But I'd rather you go and check out Leaders in Sport. I've got an exclusive offer for you to claim one of 100 free trials of their online membership with unlimited access for a month. The Leaders Performance Institute gives you members-only access to their entire catalogue of content, which includes contributions from many of the guests you've heard on this podcast. As a member, you'll get full access to daily articles, deep-dive performance reports, industry trends, and event videos. Plus, I'll be writing a monthly column throughout 2019. There's only 100 free trials, so jump on this now before they run out. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash Cody to claim your free membership for the month. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com. <laughs>